It is good to see every single last one of you this morning. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And as you are making your way back to your seat, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to grab one of the Bibles that's on the tray tables behind each section of chairs. Uh, you can use that this morning. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please keep that. Let that be our gift to you this morning. Um, the rest of you, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of 1 John, where we have been for a little while, um, and what we will wrap up on today. Hey, good to see you guys. And right front, long lost friends. First John, chapter five. It has been my desire for a long time. I can't really remember exactly how long, but I know it's been a long time uh, to teach a class on what I often call bumper sticker theology. Um, for a number of years, I've wanted to take some of the most popular bumper stickers that I've seen on cars uh, and teach a class on each of the things that they say. And bumper stickers tend to say some of the pithiest and, and oftentimes dumbest things that you will ever find. And people will put them on their cars and let them represent themselves with that kind of statement. Uh, and so I wanted to take a class of like the 10 most popular, most misunderstood, uh, and most dangerous bumper stickers and teach a class on them uh, about what they really say about what we're believing and what we're trusting. Uh, and along with bumper stickers, some of the statements that we tend to encourage each other with or, or some of the statements that culturally we tend to say to one another. And, and let me give you one this morning uh, and see if I want to ask you to raise your hand uh, if you've ever said this to someone else um, or if this is part of your normal encouragement of one another but have you ever been told by someone or yet have you ever told someone else that it's not what you don't know what you don't know can't hurt you have you ever told someone that what you don't know can't hurt you is that not some of the worst thinking around. What, what you don't know can't hurt you. How many of you would like your doctors to operate by that philosophy? <laughs> don't, don't worry. What you don't know can't hurt you. I'm not going to bother to find out what's really wrong with you because as long as you live in ignorance, it really, it really can't damage you. That's some of the worst thinking some of the worst philosophy and ultimately some of the worst theology that any of us could ever live around. What we don't know can't hurt us. Thank goodness our doctors don't operate by that and thank goodness the scriptures don't operate off that same principle. The scriptures are inherently and deeply and principally concerned with what you do need to know what you can know with confidence and assurance. And in particular, the letter of 1 John, the one that we've been studying for a few months now. John is passionately concerned that if you are a follower of Christ, you have assurance and confidence in particular things that you can indeed know. That you can know that you are a follower of Christ when you can see in your life particular fruit that comes from a sincere and devoted faith in the person and work of Jesus. There are some things that you have to know. Not knowing them can indeed hurt you. Not knowing them can indeed be dangerous. Not knowing them can, can be deadly. There are things that you need to know and John says there are things that you can know and have confidence and certainty in. 
as a follower of Christ. And so in 1 John chapter 5, he is actually going to touch on all the things that he has mentioned in the first four chapters. And we've talked often in this series about how repetitive John is, how it's a lot like climbing up a spiral staircase and you keep walking by the same window over and over again. You just see it from a different angle. John has been incredibly repetitive in this letter. And now in chapter five, he's going to repeat everything he's already said before in the first four chapters so that you can have confidence, so that you can have assurance. And as we come to the last couple of verses in chapter five this morning, I wanna go back to the beginning of chapter five and quickly read through what John has said, you as a follower of Christ can and should have confidence in knowing. And having confidence in knowing that you believe these things, there are particular things that should be seen and be true about your life. What you know does impact how you live. And that's why it's important that you actually have the confidence of knowing that you know certain things about Christ. So let's just look at what he says. Chapter five, verse one. First thing John says is that you can know, you can have assurance that you have been born again. Look at verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Belief in Christ. True belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ is evidenced by being born again. Being born again, we saw that John explained a few weeks ago, is evidenced by faith in Christ. Faith in the person and work of Christ is a visible evidence that you have indeed been born again by the Holy Spirit. And a love for Christ and a love for God the Father gives itself over in our life to love for one another. Love for brothers and sisters in Christ. So John says that you can know, you can know that you really truly do love God's people. Look at verse two. By this we know that we love the children of God. Here's how you can know that you really do love God's people. When we love God and we obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So loving God's people the way that we have been loved by Christ, loving God's people with the same sense of sacrificial love, with the same sacrifice with which we have been loved by Christ is a reflection of our love for God. And so we can know that we not only love God and keep his commandments, but we can know that we actually love God's people. This is something you can be certain of. This is something you should be certain of as a follower of Christ. But John's gonna keep going. We don't have time to talk about all these. We preached sermons on every single one of these so you can go back in the series and, and hear a more full treatment of each of these things. It's just a reminder of what he said. Next, John says, you can know and have confidence as a follower of Christ that you have overcome the world. Look at verse four. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. He just told us what it meant to be born of God, to be born again, evidenced by faith in Christ and love for the brothers. Now we know that if we have been born of God, we have overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So believing in Jesus is the first fruits of being born again and is the source of our victory over the world, our love of flesh, our lust of the things of our eyes that we see and our pride 
and the possessions that we have as John has defined that. We can know that we have overcome the world through faith in Christ. This is something we should have confidence of and assurance of as a follower of Christ. That should impact the way that we live, the life that we live and be seen in our decisions, in our actions, and in our motivations. And John says you can actually know that you have overcome the world. He's gonna keep going though. Look at verse six. John says another thing you should know, and this has been central to the entire letter. You can and should know and have confidence in that Jesus, Jesus Christ is truly God. Verse six, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has this testimony in himself. And whoever does not believe has made God a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. You can have confidence and assurance in knowing that Jesus Christ truly is God and it has been testified by his virgin birth. It has been testified by his baptism by the water. It has been testified by his blood shed on the cross. It has been testified to by the Holy Spirit himself and it has been testified to by God the Father. And you as a follower of Christ have this very testimony within yourself. You can and desperately need to know as a follower of Christ that Jesus is truly God. Along with that, John's gonna keep going. There's more that you need to know and need to have confidence in and can indeed have confidence in. A confidence that changes the way that we live, that bears the fruit of righteousness. The next thing he says that you can know is that you have eternal life. Verse 11. This is the testimony that God, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's a central statement of purpose in this letter right there in verse 13. We spent two weeks on it. He wanted you as a follower of Christ, as the church, to have confidence and assurance in knowing that in Christ you have eternal life. Four times in these couple of verses, John mentions mentions Jesus. He mentions the Son of God and five times he mentions life, eternal life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and eternal life go hand in hand with one another. And you can know and indeed should know and need to know and have confidence that you, as a follower of Christ, have eternal life. But this confidence is gonna continue on. John says there's something else that we need to have confidence in and and we can know and we should know. And again, it changes the way that we live. He says we should have confidence and assurance that God listens to and answers prayer. Look at verse 14, this is the confidence. Here we go, there's that word again. Here's the confidence that we have toward him, talking about God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death and I do not say that one should pray for that, but all wrongdoing is sin but there is a sin that does not lead to death. John said you can be confident that God not only desires for you to pray, to talk with him, but he listens. And in his listening, he answers. 
And you can never be more confident, and we spent two weeks looking at this, you can never be more confident in your prayer than when you know that you are praying according to God's will. Especially when it comes to the privilege that we have to pray or to intercede, we talked about, on behalf of one of our brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the truest ways that we can actually love one another. We spent some time talking about this. You can go back and listen to that, but John's not done. He's gonna keep going. Look at verse 18. Something else we should be confident and have assurance of. And he's already talked about this earlier in the letter, so we won't spend a lot of time on it this morning. But you should know that Christians are not characterized by sin. You should have confidence to know that if you are a follower of Christ, your life is not to be characterized by sin. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now we know from the earlier parts of the letter, you can go back and listen to it if, if you weren't here with us, but you can know from the earlier parts of the letter that John is not saying that Christians are perfect, that Christians are without sin. In fact, in the beginning of the letter, in chapter one, he said that if you claim to be without sin, if you claim to no longer deal with sin, and sin is not an issue for you in your life anymore, you're deceived. In fact, you've deceived yourself, and at worst, you are calling God a liar, and you're calling the wisdom of God that is found in his cross and in his ongoing transformation of you through his Holy Spirit foolishness. But our life is not to be characterized by sin. Our hearts and our desires are not to be characterized, as John has said throughout the letter, by delighting in darkness, by finding a home in darkness. We are to love the light, to walk in the light to recognize our sin, to see it for what it is, to agree with God about it, about it, to call it what it is, and to confess it to God, to receive the forgiveness that only comes from God through his son, Jesus. If you are born of God, you are not characterized by sin. That's the first part of verse 18. But he's gonna go on in the second part of verse 18, something else that we've already talked about in this letter, but that he wants you to be confident of and to have assurance of. So he's gonna repeat it again, probably the third time so far. Jesus preserves his people. You should have confidence in this. You should be assured by this. You should be encouraged by this. Jesus preserves his people. Look at the second part of verse 18. But he who was born of God, talking about Jesus here, protects him, talking about you. And the evil one does not touch him. So finding comfort in darkness is incompatible with being born again. Well, the preservation that comes from God through Christ is incompatible with those who delight in darkness. But those who have been born again, those who indeed are followers of Christ, those who have been made new by the Holy Spirit can and should have the confidence and the assurance that Jesus Christ himself is preserving you from the evil one. Jesus is the one who keeps you safe so that the evil one, so that Satan, and this is the literal translation of this verse, can't fasten himself to you. He can't fasten himself to you so as to begin to control you, to lead you. Jesus Christ himself preserves you from that. Look look at how he said it in John chapter 10. I think it's John chapter 10. Let's see how fast I can go there and read it to you. It's not gonna come up on the screen. John chapter 10. Look at what Jesus says, verse 28. Listen to him. He says, I give them, talking about his followers, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. John wants you as a follower of Christ, if you have been born again, to have the confidence and the assurance that Jesus himself preserves his people. He's talked about that elsewhere in the letter, so we won't go too much further into that. But there's another thing that he says in verse 19. Again, a central theme of the letter that he's repeated over and over and over again. If you are a follower of Christ, you can and should have confidence and assurance in knowing whose you are. Who you belong to. Whose you are. Verse 19. We know, there's something else you can know, that we are from God. If you have been born again through faith in the person and work of Christ, you can and should have confidence that you indeed are from God. All that you have and all that you are comes from God. You belong to him, body and soul. And we can know this is true of us by the fruit that we see in our lives. This is what his letter has been all about by our ongoing and deepening sincere faith in the person and work of Christ and our ongoing sacrificial love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and our ongoing pursuit of character and maturity and holiness. We can know that we are from God and that we belong to God, body and soul. And this touches on issues of authority, theologically on issues of lordship. It means we delight in the fact that we're not the ones who are in control. Our hearts and our lives are surrendered to God in his goodness and in his glory. You can know whose you are and you can grow to delight in deeper and deeper measures in whose you are. This is what John is after for a follower of Christ. You delight in the authority of God the Father. There's something else you can know. He's going to keep going. He's already talked about that throughout the letter. We're going to keep going. Something else he says, the second half of verse 19, you can know whose you are, but you can also know the deception that exists in the world. This has been another central theme of John's throughout this letter. Look at the second half. And the whole world, John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There is an enemy who consistently breathes out lies of autonomy, And that lie lies at the heart of every single one of our sinful desires. And the world has fallen prey to that lie that ultimately will be seen for what it is as as an illusion. And Jesus, the one who has made us new, if you are a follower of Christ, the one through whom you have indeed been born again, And Jesus, the one who is preserving you from the evil one attaching himself to you. Jesus has not pulled you out of this world that has fallen prey to the illusion of autonomy. That has fallen prey to the illusion of independence apart from God. He has not pulled you out of this world. But he has left us in this world. This was his great prayer. And as he has left us in this world, he gives us himself and his word and his spirit to lead us and to guide us and to continue to transform us into his image that we might declare his goodness, that we might declare his glory, that we might declare his good news to a watching and desperate world who is absolutely caught hook, line, and seeker into the illusion of autonomy 
Jesus hasn't taken us out of this world, but he has sent us into this world with promises of new life and new power and a new protection and preservation that comes from him. This is what you can know and have confidence of as a follower of Christ. John's been talking about this through this entire letter. But there's more. There's more he wants you to have confidence of and assurance of as he's wrapping this letter up. Look at what he says in verse 20. He wants you to have confidence and assurance as a follower of Christ that you indeed know. Not just in your mind, but know in a relationship the one true God. And this brings the whole letter back full circle to where he started in the first verse, where he desired that you would know the fellowship that is ours, the fellowship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that is the source of true and abiding joy. This is what he wanted. This is what he said when he started, and now he's bringing it full circle here towards the end in verse 20. Look at what he says. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So John is saying that your confidence and your assurance is grounded in what God has done in history, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the man who came, who took on flesh, the one who lived a perfect life of worship and delight in God in our place, the one who died our death, that we deserve to die for our sin on the cross, the one that God accepted as a substitute, a sacrifice in our place and raised from the dead, the literal man, Jesus Christ, who had come from heaven to earth and has risen from the grave to ascend back to the right hand of God, you can have confidence and assurance that is grounded in him. You can know him, not just in your mind, but you can have a relationship with him And he leads us in understanding. He's the one that gives us understanding of who he is. He is the one by the power of his spirit who opens up the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of God in his face. That we might not just come to have right answers, but that we might come to know him personally. To be satisfied in him. To see our need for him and to find him exceedingly delightful that we might live now and for eternity in the good of the relationship that he has with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. This is what he calls his people into, that we might know it, that we might not just taste it, but that we might live in it. In him, in Christ, John has said, and he's saying again here at the end, we are as close as we could ever be to God the Father because we are in his son. And we can have the joy of the relationship that he has with his Father. And Jesus shares with us his eternal life. And this is what John wants for the church, that you might know this fellowship, that in this fellowship you might have the confidence and the assurance that is yours. And that in this confidence and this assurance that is yours because of faith in Christ, you might have and taste and live in the joy that comes from it. This is what he said from the beginning and what he said to the end. All of those things we can know, should know. And as we do, they transform the way that we live. And this is what he's been pulling out throughout the letter, different evidences of transformation. And now he's gonna end his letter with one more thing that we should know. And you can look at it in one of two ways. I'm sure others of you could come up with a different way to say it, but there's one of two ways you can say this last thing that John wants us to know. And this is where we'll sit for the remainder of our time. As a follower of Christ, John desperately wants you to know 
He wants you to, to, to pay attention to and to be aware of and to know that you can know the tactics of your enemy. You can know the tactics of your enemy. Another way you could say it is that when all has been said, you can know now what is your responsibility in preserving this joy. What is your responsibility in preserving your joy? This is how John ends his letter, and it's one of the most unique endings in the New Testament. He actually ends with a command. It's very rare. This is what he says, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. How do you, what role do you play in the preservation of this joy that has been bought for you and secured for you by Jesus Christ himself? What is your role in preserving that joy and that fellowship? John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's been said that idolatry is the central principle of the Bible. I didn't come up with that. There were two Jewish scholars who were deeply and personally acquainted with the scriptures. And this is what they said about the Bible. They said that idolatry is the central principle of the Bible. We talk a lot about idolatry around here at Redemption Hill. This particular verse, chapter five, verse 21, uh, this verse and others like it have a profound impact on how we do what we do and why we do what we do. This is the scripture's command for how we preserve our joy that has been secured for us in Christ. And we were created by God, as you know the story, to worship him, to be satisfied completely in him. We were to be satisfied in God for who he is and who he was and how he provided for us and cared for us. And as we were satisfied in him and our satisfaction in him grew, our delight in him would grow. And as we were satisfied in him and worshiped him for who he was, his glory would be made known. This was how he created mankind. He hardwired us from day one to worship, to make much of him, to find him exceedingly satisfying and delightful. But as you and I both know, you know the story, the natural inclination of your heart and my heart when we wake up in the morning, when you woke up this morning, the natural inclination of your heart was not love and trust and service towards God for who he is and what he ha- has done for you. The natural inclination of our, our hearts most mornings when we wake up and throughout our day is not worship of our creator. It's somehow a pursuit. It's definitely a pursuit but it's a pursuit of something that we think will bring us what we most desperately need. You see, in the garden, and you know the story, Adam and Eve exchanged the worship of God and the truth of who God is and who he was for them for a lie that was told to them. The evil one whispered a lie to Adam and Eve that said God was holding out on you. He was keeping something from you. He didn't want you to be the most that you could be. He didn't want you to be all that you could be. Does he really have your best interest in mind or is he all just about himself and he's keeping you back? They believed a lie about the person and character of God, the intention and the motivation of God. 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That was the first great exchange. In Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul was writing about this. This will help you understand this more clearly. And we'll get down to what John is really talking about here in a minute. But I want you to see how the Bible's written about this. Paul, in writing to the, to the church in Rome, said this. Romans chapter one, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And I'm gonna make this personal. We're gonna change the, the pronouns in this as I read it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by our unrighteousness, our unrighteousness, yours and mine, suppress the truth. Suppress the truth about who God is. Who God is as creator. Who God is as sovereign. Who God is as provider. Who God is as definer. Psychologists have a word for this. They call it the psychology of unbelief. They say that the majority of people run away from a true God, a a sovereign God, an an overruling God because he's the greatest threat to their personal autonomy. If he's really true, then he's the greatest threat to your personal autonomy and independence. And so out of fear of losing what you think is really yours, you suppress the truth about who he is or the reality of his existence. They call it the psychology of unbelief. The Bible just calls it sin. And Paul's gonna go on and explain it. Look at verse 19. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to you. Remember, I'm changing the pronoun. Because God has shown it to you. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Now I'll change it again. So we are without excuse. For although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave us up in the lust of our hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of our bodies among ourselves because we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and we worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is to be blessed forever. Amen. Here's the issue with idolatry. We we don't abandon God. We don't just put the idea of God on a shelf. We were hardwired by our creator to worship. We just exchange him for something more suitable to our own liking. I'm not gonna try to make this any more complicated than it really is. Idolatry is is essentially exchanging the truth of who God is for something that we would rather have or deal with. It's just exchanging God, not abandoning him. Not, not putting him off on a shelf and, and going on our own way. No, it's always exchanging him for something else. And it's always something that's just more suitable to our desires. He made us, he created us to derive our significance, to derive our meaning, to derive our security, or ultimately to derive our identity from a relationship with him. And when we think we exclude him, or when we simply just put him on the side, a vacuum is created, and vacuums don't stay empty forever. When I think about idolatry, and I try to get a picture in my mind and, and how we exchange God for something else. I think about what it looks like to have your, your kids, or remember when you were a kid playing on, on the sand on the beach and you were down by the water line and you're trying to dig a hole to build something. And the deeper you would dig and the faster you would dig, the more the water would just come up and fill it up. And as soon as you thought you had dug a hole far enough and created a hole empty enough to build something, it filled right back up. And this is the way it is with our hearts. 
We may think or be able to explain that we've just put God over here and we're going to suppress God and put him on the shelf and we're just going to abandon God. But in that vacuum, something always comes into play. We don't abandon him. We simply just exchange the truth about him for something else. It's just an exchange. The first exchange that existed in the garden, which is why I hate when they call it the fall. Nobody fell into anything. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And from that point on, every single one of us who has been born on this earth lives a series of exchanges every single day. We worship and we serve something other than the true God. Every single last one of us. It's how he created us. He created us to worship. And this is essentially what idolatry is. Idolatry is when something gets inflated in our lives. And thoughts and desires or longings or expectations or activities. Things that we worship in place of the true God. Idols become so fundamental in our life and in our identity. That they become more fundamental than God. More fundamental to defining and deriving meaning and security and purpose and joy. Idols become the things that we ultimately trust. They become the things that we ultimately obey. In a fallen world, each of us, every single last one of us, deals with things like insecurity and and anxiousness and, and assurance and meaning, value. Let me just say this as clearly as I, as I can to try to help you so that we don't end up talking about a concept and, and not being clear to you. What you worship, you give your affection and attention to. And here's how you can know what those things are. These are the things that you look to or the things that you ask to save you from your insecurity to save you from your anxiety, to save you from your invisibility. You know what that feels like, don't you? And what is it that you look to to save you from your insecurity? I mean, what do you have to have to feel secure and comfortable? You know what it feels like to be invisible, to not feel like you have value or meaning somewhere? What do you look to to actually give you visibility, to make you feel valued? so that you can have purpose and meaning. These idols, they're what you look to to tell you that you matter. They're what you look to to tell you that you count. And you look at these things and you say, tell me what I need to do to mean something. What do I need to do to be valued? What do I need to do to be seen? What do I need to do? And then you simply obey them. You simply do what they say. Idols are what you look to to save you from insignificance and instability. And you hope they give you value, meaning, confidence, and direction. And they're not always bad things. People have been writing about idolatry in the Bible for centuries. The Puritans were masters of this, but in our day and age, a pastor in New York named Tim Keller has has gotten kind of popular for his writing on idolatry. Let me just read you something that he wrote in his book called Counterfeit Gods. I'd encourage you to, to pick it up and read it, but this is what he said. He said, a counterfeit God or an idol is anything so central or essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. 
It has such controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy and emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or a career and making money. It can be achievement or acclaim or it can be simply saving face. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. He says, for example, physical beauty is a pleasant thing. But if you deify it, if you make it the most important thing in your life or in a culture, then you have Aphrodite, not just beauty. You have people in entire cultures who constantly agonize over appearance, spending inordinate amounts of time and money on it, and foolishly evaluating character on the basis of it. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, or ultimately identity, then it is an idol, or as he says, a counterfeit God. Idolatry represents a fundamentally and profoundly different way of living than what is presented by the gospel. Listen to me, I hope you get this. This is, this is important. In the gospel, as John has been pointing out over and over and over again, and we just read it 10 times, our confidence, our assurance, our meaning, our hope, our joy, ultimately our identity, put that in big caps, our identity is something that we receive from God on the basis of faith in Christ. Our identity, our hope, our confidence, our meaning, our purpose, it's something that we receive from God through faith in Christ. Now here's what idolatry does. Idolatry moves us away from receiving those things, from receiving identity from God. And in an exchange, in an exchange, it forces us now to cultivate an image that can hopefully then produce the types of things that we've received from God that can save us from that feeling of insignificance and invisibility and hopelessness. What happens is what we're supposed to receive from God, think about it on a vertical plane, what we're supposed to receive from God, that identity, who we are and what that means for how we live, we have exchanged that vertical identity for a horizontal image. And now our life in idolatry and counterfeit gods is spent trying to cultivate an image. We exchange the worship of God and the receipt of an identity from him. And now on a horizontal level, we require the, require the people around us and the culture around us and the community around us to now supply that for us. We look for our friends and our family and our jobs and whatever else it is to supply for us what we have exchanged that was once supposed to be received from God. When that happens, when, when we exchange the receipt of an identity from God to the cultivation of an image around with one another, everything then, everything gets staked on how other people see us, how they value us, how successful we are. Ultimately, everything that we're looking for gets staked on how visible and, and valuable we are or we perceive ourselves to be. And so in idolatry, God no longer plays the role of establishing our identity 
In idolatry, we're left to spend a, a lifetime trying to gain acceptance and meaning and, and purpose and value and visibility solely on the horizontal level with one another. We've gone from receiving from God to cultivating an image. We've left identity that defines us. Now we're left to try to build something, constantly working to find that kind of validation and meaning from other people. I mean, just, this might be painful, but I mean, be honest. Is this not what the majority of blogs and Facebooks and Twitter accounts really are all about? I mean, is it not the most sophisticated means we have to cultivate a particular image that we want to be perceived by with other people so that from other people, when we're perceived a particular way we're trying to put out there, we can then receive the type of validation and meaning and social capital that we so desperately want? And when this is the case, everything that we say and do and cultivate matters. Meaning and purpose and value is hinged on the way that we put that image out there and the way that it's received. It's all hinged on your opinion of me. This is what idolatry leads us into. We exchange the identity that is ours through Christ for an image that we have to cultivate amongst one another. When you exchange the worship of God for idols, for counterfeit gods, you, you move from the confidence and joy that's found in receiving that identity from him to cultivating an image with one another that you have to spend your entire life struggling to not only make, but to keep up and to then protect. You're left with finding identity and meaning and value in this life only, in this world. And when that's the case, the right message and the right image has to be communicated constantly. Idolatry creates a profoundly different way of existing as a human being than the gospel presents. Idolatry leads us to save ourselves from our own insignificance and our own sense of invisibility by making ourselves look and feel like somebody hoping that all of these counterfeits and all of these efforts would ultimately bring joy and security. John says, keep yourselves from idols. Here is how you preserve the joy that is yours. Here's how you preserve and delight in that which has been secured for you by Christ and now given to you. Keep yourself from idols that would lead you to exchange the truth about who God is and who you are for a lie and would lead you down a rabbit trail of cultivating an image in front of other people to try to derive in this life the meaning, the purpose, the joy, the significance, the value, the visibility that can only come from God himself. Ultimately, idolatry, let me just give you two reasons why we can keep away from it. Ultimately, idolatry will always lead you into bondage. And this is what Paul was saying in in Romans 1. He said that what we have done in exchanging the truth of God for a lie is that we have found ourselves worshiping and serving these things. See, when we have to have these images, when we have to have these things that our heart is set on, then these idols continue to control us because they give us promises. They give us hope. They give us a picture of what it is we think we most desperately need, but they also give us warnings. 
They give us promises, they give us curses, they give us hope, they give us warnings. Relationships, I mean, think of a couple of examples. Relationships. Sometimes we get caught thinking that if we had this relationship, if this relationship was ours, if we could find that particular someone, then we'll, then we'll actually matter. Then we'll actually be secure. Then we'll actually be comfortable. And then that sense of self will be complete. To promise. But it comes with a warning that if you don't get it, if you don't do whatever that idol leads you to do to secure whatever it is you need to do, if you don't get it, then you really don't matter. Then you don't really have that worth. You'll always be lonely. You'll always be insecure. All these counterfeits come with promises and they come with warnings. Money and career make promises and they also give warnings. You, you just need more, right? It never, you just need more. Work a little bit harder, you get a little bit more, then you'll be okay. And then you'll, then you'll actually know that you made a difference. And then you'll actually know that people matter. Then they'll, if you just get here, then they'll notice you. And when they notice you, you know you've actually made it, right? But what if you don't? You're left to toil and insignificance. You're left to be unappreciated. You're left to be undervalued. The line never says you need a lot. It just says you need a little bit more. And it keeps you going. And it keeps you going. It's amazing how many things in this counterfeit life we will sacrifice to pursue the hopes that our idols, that our counterfeit gods put in front of us. I mean, it's amazing what we will sacrifice. I mean, we, we preach in the Old Testament. I like to talk about the Old Testament a lot. We haven't preached on it in a while, but we'll, we'll preach about the Old Testament. We'll preach about sacrifice to, to gods like Molech, and, and we'll just be outraged at the child sacrifice that goes on in the Old Testament to, to a god like Molech. But yet, for the sake of our idols, for the sake of the things that we think will bring us meaning and value and purpose, we will sacrifice anyone, including our family and our kids, to get it. We will sacrifice the relationships that God has given us to achieve what we think we need to have this type of meaning and this type of value. Sometimes we'll go to the other extreme though. Maybe we don't value that type of success or, or that type of career that would lead us to sacrificing the people closest to us to achieve it, but we'll value and we'll idolize a perfect family. I think this one rolls around here sometimes. We'll idolize this perfect family. And what happens is we end up condemning ourselves when our kids don't live up to the expectation or the image that we have in our mind. We end up condemning ourselves, we end up condemning our kids. But here's the thing. Our kids were, were never created or meant to bear up under the weight of godness. This image this counterfeit God that we have put in front of our eyes that will bring us the significance and meaning around other people if we just had this perfect family. If my kids just did this and my wife or my husband just did this, if we just looked this way and, and acted this way, your kids were never created to bear up under the weight of Godness. But that's what you're doing to them and it crushes them. And we have this idol, this family, this picture that will sacrifice the people in our family to actually achieve. And it's idolatry. It could be beauty. Talk about one culturally. Talk about, you have this picture in your mind. 
a certain figure, a certain look. And if you can achieve that, then they'll notice you. But then you'll be more comfortable with yourself. That's not about other people, right? But then you'll just be comfortable with you. If I just lost a little bit more here, or if you're a guy who's gained a little bit more here, don't think this is a female issue alone. We have this idol of, of beauty that we think if we could just achieve this particular picture, then we'll matter. Then they'll notice us. Then we'll really mean something. And we will sacrifice so many things to get it. We look at these idols and we say, just tell me what I have to do. What do I have to do to, to have this particular meaning that you can provide? What do I need to sacrifice? How do I need to obey? And you just go do it. Think of the hours and the dollars spent pursuing these things. And it leads us into bondage. Seeing ourselves in the light of God gives a home for our identity that was secure and stable. But as we exchange the truth of God for a lie, those lies are unsheltered. And now our identity is subject to fads and opinions, just like the elements of nature. What we desperately want is a home to be accepted and loved, but we have to keep on the move, playing by culture's rules of identity and competition for attention and affection and visibility. That was a guy named Mark Sayers. Friends, this is, this is slavery if there ever was slavery. Many of us, are enslaved by our counterfeit gods. We're consumed with cultivating an image instead of receiving and embracing an identity that is ours, that is unshakable, that we cannot earn, and ultimately we cannot lose. John says, keep yourselves from idols because idols will erode the confidence, the security, the joy and the assurance that is yours because of Christ. We must forsake our idols. What we've done is we've forsaken God to grab a hold of counterfeits and now we must forsake those and cling tightly to Christ. Listen, we have fallen prey, and I don't remember who said this, but it always stuck in my mind. We have fallen prey and exchanged the truth of God for ruthless lovers, feeble saviors, and cruel masters. And we must forsake our ruthless lovers for one who will not break our heart, but instead was broken for us. We must forsake our feeble saviors for a sufficient savior who will not abandon you but was abandoned in your place. You must rebel against cruel masters for a good master who will not require more of you than he has already done on your behalf. This is what you have in Christ if you are a follower of his. He was crucified so that idol worshipers like you and I could be saved and could be cleansed of all the shame and regret that our idols have led us into. 
and so that we could be freed from all of the bondage of the counterfeits hold us in. In Jesus, John has said over and over again, there is life, forgiveness, the right to become sons and daughters of God, to be fully known by God, to know him fully. This is what we were made for. This is what you are hardwired for. This is what your heart is hungry for. What John is passionate about throughout this entire letter and as he brings it to a close is for you to have confidence and assurance that you indeed have Jesus. That he is your advocate. That he has atoned for your sin. That he has freed you from bondage and that he right now intercedes for you and not only Jesus but you have the spirit of God. He has made you alive. You are born of him. He lives in you and he guides you in all truth and he compels you out of desire and out of delight to find joy in the commands of God. You have God's word and you have God's people. And God is our only hope as we keep ourselves from idols and what we find in him what we find in him is better than anything that we can find in any of the counterfeits of our age. And so I'm gonna pray for us that we would believe this, delight in this, live in this, because what our city desperately needs is a people. It's a people who are free from idolatry. Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice in our place for our sins. I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, the only power possible to do this, that you would would help us to see the insufficiency of our counterfeits, the insufficiency of our idols, that you would draw our hearts to the delight that we have in you, that you would compel us and lead us into walking in the light, to confessing our idolatry, to confessing our sin, to confessing all of our insignificant and feeble saviors, that we would forsake them and cling fast to you, that we would find what we have in you most delightful, most satisfying for your glory and our joy. Amen.